You're listening to episode 203 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibort, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In this episode, Dr. Venema wraps up our series on Heidelberg Catechism Question and Answer 80 by reflecting on the ongoing legacy and relevancy of that particular question for today and answers the question of whether its critiques are still valid when considering contemporary Roman Catholicism. In our two previous podcasts, I started in the first with a bit of a historical background and context for the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism and its first printing in early 1563 at the instruction of Elector Frederick III and the Palatinate, and how the rather controversial question and answer 80 on the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic or Popish Mass came to be inserted into the Catechism in its second and all subsequent printings. Uh, In the second session, having dealt with the history, context, and occasion for the inclusion of question and answer 80, I identified what are the two big central primary objections identified in question and answer 80 to the Roman Catholic teaching and practice regarding the Mass at the time Uh, in the context of 16th century debates and what the Roman Catholic Church had stated and affirmed in two of its sessions, one regarding the the sacrament of the Mass or of the Eucharist. That was the first one where they dealt primarily with the doctrine of how Christ is present when the elements are transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ, and the uh, other session where the shortly before the catechism was written, they had set forth the position that in the administration of the sacrament, Christ is offered by the priests of the New Testament church in an unbloody manner so as to propitiate, provide a propitiation and a uh, basis for the forgiveness of sins and the renewal of the lives of those who are uh, nourished by means of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. What I want to do in this third session is focus on how the catechism, question and answer 80 in particular, have fared in more recent times. Now, there are any number of churches historically that include the Heidelberg Catechism as one of their confessional standards and still do, uh, unmodified, still maintaining in a principled way that question and answer 80 is a proper question and answer in terms of what it affirms and also in terms of what it condemns. Now, there may be a diversity of opinion among them as to whether the language is a little bit too severe or could be toned down a little, but they maintain as part of their confessional standards question and answer 80. Now, that's not true of any number of churches that have historically held to the Heidelberg Catechism. And I don't mean to single any particular church out, but I'm going to use the CRC as an illustration. You could use the RCA as a very similar illustration where basically the same thing is done. Both of these, the CRC and the RCA, are Reformed denominations in North America that for most of their history held to the the three standards of the Reformed churches on the continent, 
including the Heidelberg Catechism and including question and answer 80 in the Catechism. But let's uh, zero in for a moment on, and I think this is illustrative, I tell it for that reason, not so much to say things respecting the CRC as such, but it, it, it's a recent history in the CRC. It began roughly in the year 1977, where there were materials on the agenda for Senate of the CRC asking questions about the inclusion uh, of in the new translation of the catechism question and answer 80 and the senate made a pretty simple and straightforward uh, response and well we're going to include it in the new translation of our standards without any modification or uh, change in our confessional position a similar decision was made in 1998 by the crc no change We continue to hold to what question and answer 80 sets forth, but they did make a decision in 1998 that became significant. They asked their interchurch relations committee of the denomination to engage with contemporary representatives of the Roman Catholic Church to see whether question and answer 80 gives an accurate and fair representation of Roman Catholic teaching and practice, and to come back with a report as to their findings. Well, some years later, 2004 to be more precise, you could probably argue that that was a year where the Senate's decisions on this question were a kind of turning point, and the the decisions were based upon the kind of materials presented to them through their interchurch relations committee. Uh, The long and the short of it is, without going into all of the details, the CRC in this period in 2004 and then more specifically in 2006, and then again in 2011 when they prepared a joint translation of the Catechism, Heidelberg, with the RCA, Uh, as an ecumenical project, they decided to place question and answer 80 in brackets with a historical footnote, which indicated that for several reasons, this particular question and answer were no longer regarded as binding upon office bearers, ministers, elders, deacons, in either of their two respective denominations as a fair statement of the difference between a biblical reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic view. Um, That's not to say that within the CRC everyone agreed with that, but that's the official position at the present time. One doesn't have to suffer any embarrassment or make any kind of a case that what is said in question and answer 80, even if it could be said in a more modest and kindly fashion, is true. It's now regarded as not true and not something that should be said or to which office bearers should be obliged to adhere. Now, what were the arguments? I want to spend the rest of our time, most of our time in this third session on the kind of arguments that were identified as reasons to remove question and answer 80. Well, the first argument, not the most important by any means, was that the language found in question and answer 80 is one-sided in terms of the way the Mass is represented. 
you could put it this way, all the focus is upon certain features of the historic Roman Catholic view of the Mass, but these features are by no means the only features of Roman Catholic teaching, that it's a, that it's a, a sacrament of thanksgiving, that there are other benefits and features beyond the fact of it being an unbloody sacrifice. The language used by the, uh, the CRC was, it's too one-sided. And by virtue of its being one-sided, by failing to acknowledge some features of Roman Catholic understanding respecting the sacrament uh, that are not as objectionable, it, uh, it actually misrepresents. I'll come back to these arguments, each one in turn, in just a moment. Let me just get them all before us as quickly as I can. The second one is, they, in terms of their engagement with contemporary Roman Catholic uh, representatives, seem as a committee to have been persuaded by the argument that the notion of the sacrifice of the Mass as an unbloody sacrifice, in distinction from the bloody sacrifice of Christ made upon the cross, that that's a single sacrifice, that we shouldn't use terms like a repeating. No, it's more properly a singular sacrifice being perpetuated or represented. That when the Catechism says that Christ is daily offered, when the Mass is daily celebrated, they've falsely separated what Roman Catholics insist is but one sacrifice. It's not another sacrifice. It's not another who is being sacrificed. It's not even another who is sacrificing himself because Christ is acting through the priest in presenting himself upon the altar in an unbloody way when the sacrifice of the Mass is celebrated. So they, they called into question the legitimacy of the, of the answer's claim that the Mass is a, a continuous repeating on a daily basis of a sacrifice made but once for all. They also contested the claim of the Catechism, question and answer 80, that there's any idolatry committed in the way in which the Mass is practiced or understood, because the intention and purpose of the veneration and proper Latria worship of the elements is focused upon the person of Jesus Christ, the, the, the one who made sacrifice of himself for us. So because the worshiper of the elements as they're lifted up, venerated, and adored, is a worship intended to worship Christ himself, not the bread and wine, because the bread and wine has become the body and blood of Christ, so it's really a worshiping of Christ himself. It's not idolatry. That's probably, together with the second, these two, the most significant of the arguments in the CRC's report. The fourth argument was that the catechism is misunderstanding Catholic teaching. The Catholic teaching is not that the merit or the propitiatory value, as it's put in the Statement of Trent, 
of what is accomplished as the Mass is administered is a propitiation that justifies in the sense of secures our acceptance with God, but it's a propitiation that has not a value unto our justification, but is a renewing grace, a sanctifying grace, not a justifying grace. I'll come back to that in just a bit. And then the last argument was, we have to distinguish, said the authors of the CRC's report, between what might be the practice of some Roman Catholics and their understanding, and what is the official teaching and the official sanctioned practice of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in quick succession, let me respond to those arguments. As to the first one-sided, there's no... If you read the Catechism, this isn't the only question and answer on the Lord's Supper. There are many other things said about the sacrament. This is a this is a question and answer that is precisely intended to address two of the principal features of the Roman Catholic Church's teaching. That it doesn't address other aspects, and that there might even be some aspects of a biblical sort that remain in the Roman Catholic practice of the administration of the Mass. It's neither here nor there. Uh, what is at stake is whether it represents those elements or not. What about these two, which are by every measure the central features of historic Roman Catholic understanding regarding the Mass? So let's turn to them. Uh, what about this argument that it's not another sacrifice? Uh, the short retort to that has to be, well, why is it being renewed why is it being why is there an ongoing action called an action by a priest in Christ's name upon an altar offering the very body and blood of Christ though admittedly said to be in an unbloody fashion with propitiatory value and fruit you can't sidestep i won't quote calvin on this but calvin addressed this very argument of the Roman Catholic Church front on at the time of the Reformation. You're playing with words when you say it's one sacrifice, and then you stretch the sacrifice out through time such that it's never completed, never not needing to be represented. This is a distinction without a difference. goes to the point I made in my second uh, podcast Christ either sat down and is not standing in the person of his appointed priest in front of an altar, making a new sacrifice today, or he's still standing. He's still sacrificing. He's still being offered. He he was not offered but once, which is the explicit argument in the main of the whole book of Ephesians. I always say to people when they ask, what's the biggest most important point made in the whole book, he sat down. No new priests to be appointed, no new altars to be stood in the presence of, no new sacrifice to be placed upon the altar. Uh, It's not insignificant, just as an aside, that the architecture of a Protestant and Reformed church is one where you have a table, not an altar. 
because no sacrifice is being made. And the command of our Lord and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is more than a mere remembering of his death, but it is that at least at one level. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this in repetition so as to do again what was once done and finished. So I, it, there's nothing in the, the documents of, you can read a quote on that in John R. W. Stott's treatment of this question in his book, The Cross of Christ, where explicitly in the New Catechism, including the documents from Vatican II, what was stated at Trent in the 16th century is once again ratified and stated anew, and Trent is quoted, nothing is overturned, all the anathemas pronounced against those who teach otherwise are retained. It's, in my judgment, a form of serious naivete to think that that objection regarding this, the sacrifice of the Mass has been removed. Now, as to the idolatry question, there too, I think the, um, it has to be observed that Q&A 80 is quite correct. In my little book, I quote Francis Turretin, a great Reformed theologian in the period of Reformed Orthodoxy, who says, that the good intention of a worshiper, when misdirected, uh, does not annul the charge of idolatry. The children of Israel, he adduces the illustration, worship the Lord in the form of a golden calf. They committed idolatry. It may be a very good intention that Christ be worshiped, but what is worshiped is not Christ. It's the bread, the wine, said to have become the actual body and blood of Christ. Uh, now, I, I do hasten to add here something that needs always to be remembered. However difficult and strong the language of question and answer 80, the language of accursed idolatry. Well, I don't know that you would ever want to use the language of uh, wonderful idolatry or not to be condemned idolatry or not to be repented of idolatry, uh, condemnable idolatry. Whatever you think about the language, idolatry it is to worship the creature rather than the creator, to offer that latria, veneration, worship, adoration, to God alone, to consecrated elements. I think the objection remains, uh, it stands. The fourth objection is really silly. There is no distinction within Roman Catholic teaching between justification and sanctification. The process of justification includes the administration of the Mass. And only when one has been fully justified in Protestant language that would be sanctified, made righteous, is one acceptable to God. That's why people spend time in purgatory needing to be further sanctified, also by way of the benefit merit obtained for them by Mass's administered for the dead, are they made fit for being accepted by and welcomed into God's presence? Uh, I'm really quite astonished that the authors, some of whom are reputable uh, theologians whom I respect, even in the terms of their historical work, succumb to the introduction of a Protestant distinction like that between justification and sanctification to try to defend the idea that the merit accrued in the Mass and its administration propitiatory 
is not unto our justification. Of course it is. It's always been the Roman Catholic Church's teaching. Uh, As to the last point, there too, I don't believe you can make the case that there's any real difference between practice and teaching then and now. Uh, It's very significant that the uh, Roman Catholic Church never has taken back the statements. And I do think it's important to recognize that the catechism's condemnation is not a condemnation of persons. It's a condemnation of the teaching. It's also worth observing historically that the anathemas of Trent and of the Roman Catholic Church that have not been retracted against those who would hold a view like that of Q&A 80 are against the persons um, so that has to at least to be borne in mind before one becomes unduly agitated at the strong language used by the uh, authors of Question and Answer 80. I'm going to conclude with a quote from none other than Karl Barth, who isn't necessarily regarded as an unduly conservative or orthodox Reformed theologian, but he says the following regarding Question and Answer 80. I quote, To think that the sacrifice of Christ can be repeated in this way is to give it over to the control of man. Another Christ appears. We must understand this secret attack on the exclusive authority of Jesus Christ if we are to understand the angry explosion of the Heidelberg Catechism at this point. It is a very naive tendency of many Protestants today to think that our differences from Catholic doctrine are insignificant and that we can find common ground in a one holy Catholic Church movement. Certainly we can carry on genuine theological conversations with Catholics, but we have to decide between, on this question, Christ alone or Christ and. Next up on the podcast, I sit down with 2007 alumnus of Mid-America, Nick LeMay, to talk through a three-part series on the important subject of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or what we famously call the unpardonable sin. What is it? What does Jesus mean by it? And have you committed it? Tune in next time to learn more. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.